Good afternoon. Uh, I'm John Podesta. I'm the president of the Center for American Progress, and I want to thank you all for joining us today uh, for a discussion with Robert Hefner about his new book, The Get, uh, Grand Energy Transition. Uh, I've had the pleasure of knowing Robert for some time, and I have no doubt that this afternoon's conversation is going to be a lively and an informative one. Uh, I'd like to extend my thanks to Sharon Burke, who's a senior fellow at the Center for New American Security, for moderating this afternoon's discussion, and to Kurt Campbell, uh, who's here someplace, uh, the CEO and co-founder of CNAS, who will provide the closing remarks. Uh, Sharon and Kurt and Peter Ogden, who I should do a shout-out to, who's in the back, uh, and I have become the traveling quartet on the, on the uh, security challenges of climate change. So it's always good to have our partners at CNES uh, with us over here. Uh, and uh, I want to thank, again, I want to thank Sharon for, for moderating uh, this discussion. I know that uh, everyone's uh, anxious to get uh, to hear what Robert has to say, but uh, before he gets to talk, I want to say a few words about him. Uh, his wealth of experience in the energy industry, and particularly in the field of natural gas, has established him as one of the most powerful voices uh, on the issue of energy transformation and energy security. He's the founder and owner of GHK Exploration, a private natural gas company uh, based in Oklahoma City that has helped to drive much of the innovative technology that now allows us to tap into some of the uh, world's deepest and most productive natural gas wells. His terrific work has been recognized by people and institutions around the world. Robert is a fellow uh, of the Royal Geographical Society of London, a member of Singapore's International Advisory Panel on Energy, and a member of the International Council at the Belfer Center at Harvard. He's also an, on, uh, on the advisor, he's, is an advisory director of the Center for New American Security and has established the Hefner Initiative on Energy and National Security at CNAS. Uh, while I'll allow Robert to explain the details of his work, I want to say that one of the things that Robert has done extremely well in his book is to provide an insider's account of the history of our energy consumption, the present state of it. We were just talking about energy consumption during the Carter administration, uh, and I think we should have listened more to you uh, back then. We've been in a slightly different place today. Uh, and what the future will look like uh, if our nation's energy policies continue down the path that we currently are on. Uh, he makes a persuasive case in the book that if we continue with business as usual, then we'll never escape volatile oil prices, we'll never be free of our dependence on unstable and hostile regimes for our energy, and we'll experience truly catastrophic climate change. Uh, faced with this certainty, the only smart course of action uh, is to transition our economy away from a model that's dependent on dirty sources of energy, particularly oil and coal, and towards a model that's based on cleaner fuels, including renewables like wind, solar, and geothermal power, and cleaner natural gas, which is abundant in our country and around the world. It goes without saying that Robert's blueprint for this energy transition couldn't have come at a more timely moment. Uh, we have a new president who has already taken great strides in restoring America's leadership on energy issues. The Recovery and Reinvestment Act that just passed had uh, about $90 billion included in the, in the $787 billion bill uh, to put us on a path towards more efficiency, cleaner fuels, uh, and better transmission. Uh, and, you know, we're just a few weeks into President Obama's uh, term. term. Uh, he's taken uh, a number of additional decisive uh, steps, I think really starting with putting together an energy team that really is, is uh, spectacular. Uh, 
Robert and Miley and, and I were at the Energy Summit that CAP put on yesterday that included President Clinton and Vice President Gore and Leader Reid and, and uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, but the people who were there from the administration, Carol Browner, Steve Chu, uh, 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 Ken Salazar, uh, uh, Lisa Jackson at EPA, Nancy Sutley at CQ are really a spectacular team uh, that are, I think, going to lead us towards uh, a new uh, a new beginning on energy. Uh, he's also, obviously, the president's also taken a number of uh, decisive steps, and those are followed up uh, by uh, indications from uh, from some of these uh, people uh, in high office. Uh, for example, the the president's decision to start the process to grant uh, California's uh, uh, waiver to begin to ta uh, regulate tailpipe emission standards along with 16 other states, uh, the decision to uh, to get on with the, with the uh, prospect of taking up the authority that the Supreme Court granted under the Clean Air Act to the EPA to begin to take a look at CO2 as a pollutant. I think those are very important steps and will lead uh, to uh, energy uh, transformation uh, in this country. Uh, obviously, our friend Carol Browner is now coordinating climate and energy policy at the White House, and we, we uh, wish her well. Um, still, uh, as the GET illustrates, this transition will be no easy task. Uh, it really is the transformation of our entire economy from a high carbon uh, to a low carbon base. We need bold, innovative thinking of the kind that Robert provides in this book, and I'm delighted to have him here today to share with us his unique insights. With that, I'm going to turn the mic over to Sharon, uh, who's going to lead us into discussion. And then uh, I think after questions, some question from the audience, we'll hear at the end from Kurt Campbell. Thank you. To go, but thank you for that. Well said. Okay. Thank you very much, John, and um, both for co-hosting this event today, but in general for the leadership that you've provided on these issues. And I think yesterday was just the latest testament to what your engagement means for our country on these issues. What we're going to do here today is I'm going to make a few opening comments and introduce you to uh, our guests today. And then Robert and I will have a conversation about some of the issues that he's covered in his book for about 30 minutes. And then we'll open it up to questions from all of you who are here. And Robert will field your questions. And then uh, Kurt Campbell is going to close us out with some, with some thoughts about uh, that he has to share. We'll see what they are, I think, on where the country is going. Excuse me. I'll try to keep my mic somewhere near my lapel for all of you. No, it's mine. It fell off. Yes, I have an unreliable lapel. Um, I wanted to start out by just sharing a few general statistics, um, which I'm sure many of you know, but it's always helpful to uh, repeat them. And I want to thank my colleague, Christine Parthamore, for uh, digging them up for me which is right now 64% uh, of all energy consumed in the United States is oil or coal, and about the same worldwide. And about 80% of US CO2 emissions come from burning oil or coal. And if you look at the projections going out into the future, um, if we stay on this track in a business as usual sense, we could be seeing, this is according to the International Energy Agency, temperature changes of up to 6 degrees Celsius or 9 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. And uh, more of my colleagues, Seth Myers and Yasser Alshimi, who are back in the back there, have been following the, the latest research on these issues. And we're th what science is telling us now is that even that increase, we already knew that increase could be disastrous, but even that may be lowballing what's actually going to happen if we stay on this business as usual case. 
So the United States and the world right now are in a box. We're, we're in a coal and oil box. And we don't have something that can substitute to scale right now. So what we really need is to promote out-of-the-box thinking. We've got to find a way out of this dilemma, out of this trap that we're in. And it's why it's such a pleasure for us today to have a chance to talk to someone who's a visionary on these issues and who's offering us something that is out of the box. So with that, I want to tell you a little bit about Robert and his background, just a little, and we'll let him uh, get into more as we go along. He's a, he's a as um, John told you, he has a company that, that focuses on natural gas exploration. But what you should know is that energy runs in his family, not just in his veins. His uh, grandfather and father were both oil men. So he's actually a rebel in the family because he went into natural gas. This is not done. You know? so, um, so this is a big deal that he's gone into a different part of the, uh, of the hydrocarbon industry. And not only that, but his views on natural gas some people have said in the past are a little out there. However, he's been proven right in the past. He said you could recover gas below 30,000 feet, and then he proved it, and you can, and has been you know, a pioneer on the technologies and the way that you can recover gas at, in deep wells. So this is someone with a proven track record for making statements about what's possible and then proving that it's possible. It's, an, it's a really interesting um, way to look at these issues. So, Robert, with that as, as some background to start, you know, there's a saying that, um, that everyone has a good book in them. Um, maybe true, maybe not. But not everyone gets it on paper, that's for sure. So you did. Tell us a little bit about what motivated you. I mean, you're, you're a successful businessman. You have every right to rest on your laurels. But you really needed to get this book that's in you out on paper. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're so passionate about this subject and what made you decide you needed to write this book? Well, it's been a, <clears throat> a, life, a lifelong activity of mine. Uh, the development and understanding of natural gas is different from oil and different from other fuels. And that was one thread that has run through my life. And then the other was thinking really about what energy is. And uh, that led me to, and we'll talk further about it, but the, my belief that civilization is actually driving what I call the grand energy transition. Uh, it's the utility of energy choices made by all of civilization. And the important thing, it's pointing us out of the box, as you said. But uh, I guess the reason for now is a few of my friends and my wife, Mei Li, uh, said, you've got to get this outside of you. you it, it needs to be heard and understood. And I watched the, and was a part of, uh, the energy battles through the 70s. I actually moved to Washington. I was uh, one of the three or four people trying to sell natural gas in opposition often to the big oil companies. And so I watched it all happen. And I saw, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, I saw some mistakes that were made because uh, the United States didn't believe me, <laughs> and maybe three or four other people that said there was plenty of natural gas. Uh, we thought we were running out of it. We thought that we had to husband natural gas for the uh, 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 home consumer, for the residentials. And as a result, we passed the Fuel Use Act, which not a lot of people recognize or remember, but the Fuel Use Act was passed in 1978 as part of the 
uh, omnibus Carter legislation, and it actually prohibited the use of natural gas in its fastest two growing markets. One was uh, power generation, and the other was new industrial facilities. As a result of that, we added um, 100,000 megawatts over the next decade of new coal-fired generation. My state, Oklahoma, went from 90% natural gas then to 60% coal imported from Wyoming. And that was unnecessary. If you, and we'll look at a curve in a minute, but if you look at the curves, you can see coal was on its way out. And that one mistake macroeconomically distorted the energy system and our economy, and it added about 15 to 20 billion tons of carbon in the atmosphere that's here today that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, it lasts 100 years. Uh, uh, we're going to have to deal with it, and it was unnecessary. It didn't have to happen. So it was because of that big mistake I wrote the book. Okay, that's really interesting. You said a number of, of provocative things in that, in that um, exchange, but there was something in particular I wanted to, to press you on, which is you said civilization is driving an energy transition. And I think this gets to you know, the heart of what we're here today, which is the title of your book, The Get, The Grand Energy Transition. Um, maybe you can just set us up for generally what this book is about. You know, so it says the grand energy transition. What, what are we transitioning away from? What are we transitioning to? There you go. Um, what are we transitioning to? What, where are we coming from? Where are we going? What do you mean by the grand energy transition? And, you know, and if it is a transition, where are we in this transition? Well, first of all, most people looked at energy by source. Coal, what did coal do? How much did we use? What was the quantity? How much better? I did when we started this. How much, we, yeah, how, much, uh, how much better is oil and why is it better? And what are the qualities of that fuel? And not many people paid much attention to natural gas. So in, in the past, we used wood and hay and a lot of those things. And I found that a, one of my mentors was working on this. And, and they showed if you put energy use by fuel in a percentage of the marketplace and watched it over time, you could see how wood phased out and how coal phased in and how oil came in. And oil never made, although it's a much better fuel, it never made past itself past 50% of the marketplace. It peaked in 1973 at 48%, and it's basically declined ever since as a percentage of the marketplace. So one day, I had a eureka moment, I thought, and this is my deep belief, that civilization is showing us the way forward, that we should look at energy not as individual fuels, but as their state of matter, whether they're a solid, a liquid, or a gas. And when you do that, that chart falls out into place. That chart starts in 1500 and goes to 2500. So I think we're in what history will someday record as a rather brief liquid transition, because liquids, in fact, they're a transitionary state of matter between solids and gases, from an unsustainable life and growth on Earth, fueled principally by solids, through a brief liquid transition to a future epoch, equally as long term, that's fueled by fully sustainable uh, virtually limitless fuels, and I call them energy gases, and natural gas is the bridge to get us there. We've been, that whole time, we've been going from high carbon, 
limited sources and complex chemistry toward low carbon to no carbon, virtually limitless, simple chemistry. And at the end of the day, the simpler the molecule, the better the fuel. Can you give us an example of some of the gases that are in that, where the, the blue, um, when, once we reach this end point, what are some of the gases we're going to see there? Uh, the gases that, that uh, are in that curve are, as I said, natural gas, the bridge fuel, one carbon, four hydrogens, wind, wind is a gas, solar, solar is our local power plant. It's a ball of hydrogen gas that gives us all the solar power and heat. Hydrogen itself, I think it's a longer term, but it's the perfect energy source for sustainable life on Earth because it's water to water. And I think because I believe so deeply in this transition that I recommend, if I, if, if, if I were Secretary Chu, I'd be investing a little bit <laughs> of money again in, in fusion. I, I think fusion, which is basically the sun in the box, uh, which is hydrogen gases, uh, will eventually probably make the hydrogen that runs the whole system. So those are the gases. Well, an interesting thing about this, about this graph, too, is that not every country in the world is in the same place on mm -hmm. this graph. Some, some countries are still way back in the solids, burning dung and wood and other things. Are there countries that are poised to get ahead of these curves? Uh, well, I mean, and are you optimistic about the United States' position in this? We were, on a, we were really on a roll until 1978, and we went backwards into the 19th century. Uh, but the country furthest advanced, I think, is Singapore. It runs 80% or 85% of its uh, power generation on natural gas. Uh, but they're still running on gasoline, although they have a few hydrogen filling stations and that sort of thing. Certainly there's countries in, in Africa that are way behind, still almost in the solid era. Uh, but the, thing of, the reason I call this grand energy transition instead of global energy transition, yes, we have a global energy transition going on, but it, it is made up of the trillions of energy choices all of us on the face of the earth make every day. Energy choice. I mean, what? How many lights are on right now? How did we get here? What kind of a car did we come in? Are we a commuter? Are we not? Uh, do we sleep with the air conditioner on, or do we like the window open? You know, uh, what sort of foods do we eat? Or do we go to a restaurant? All those things are really energy decisions, and that's that's what's driving us forward. And so each single one of us also have a grand energy transition. We can plot where we are on these curves. And we can plot where every government is on these. Well, curves. I was going to say, where do you think China is on these curves? Well, China is using. Or can right, it go? And maybe is better. Yeah, China is. Well, yes, they can. Uh, uh, of course, I'm a believer in the abundance of natural gas, and it goes back to the fact that everywhere, I don't know. I, I sometimes back up so far I get away from your question, but <laughs> you got to remember, everywhere coal is found, natural gas is found, and everywhere oil is found, natural gas is found. And the oil companies thought that was the only natural gas we had, that that's what they found in what they call conventional circumstances uh, with their oil. But uh, natural gas is pervasive around the globe, unlike both coal and oil, which oil is pretty limited. And the countries that have lots of coal tend to have lots of natural gas. And examples of those, the United States, we got lots of coal. 
but we've got even, in my opinion, more natural gas than we do coal. And my book makes that point, that we've got as much or more natural gas here in America than we do coal, actually. Um, other examples that are already proven that is Indonesia and Australia. Lots of coal, lots of natural gas. And uh, personally, I believe that's going to apply once they drill for it, look for it, to both China and India. And of course, those are that's very important because natural gas can be a transition fuel um, for both China and India, and that'll be important to how our globe works in the future. Maybe you should explain a little bit more what you mean by transition fuel. Well, we eventually want to get to hydrogen, and we eventually want to get to hydrogen driving electricity, and we eventually want to get to probably plug-in electrics, vehicles, and, and, uh, and other hybrids. Uh, but in the meantime, if we really want to turn the needle or dial the needle down on CO2 emissions, and, and as I get further into this, I'll even give you some numbers, uh, we've got to use natural gas in the meantime to get us there. Because it's, and I'll argue with your opening, it is scalable today. We've got a glut of natural gas in America. And it is scalable, and we've proven that. We've been adding reserves uh, at a rate recently, as soon as we learn to unlock this natural gas from shales, that will allow us to run half the transportation fleet for another three or four decades while we phase in the electrics and hybrids or whatever of those technologies work the Fair best. Fair enough. Let's, let's draw this out a little bit because, I, as you know, the, the, the first time that we discussed this, I was very skeptical about uh, whether or not there was abundant natural gas. And I remember once we were talking about it and I was thinking, this can't be true. And then, of course, while we were there talking, um, it was announced that there have been discoveries on the Barnett Shale and on the Marcellus Shale, which are, the Marcellus Shale is, is one of the oldest natural gas finds in the country, the oldest. And here we are finding more there. So, um, as a, you know, could you, let's talk a little bit about natural gas in general, but specifically about uh, why you think it's abundant and why there are a lot of people, not just like me, but um, also people in the industry who push back. Um, I'd like to get into that, but first tell us a little bit about, about natural gas itself and the properties of gas and where it's found. Um, it, give us a primer as a, someone with, as a true expert on why this fuel is something you think is a good transition and a preferable form. You know, if we're going to transfer it over, if we're going to convert our transportation fleet over to it, what are the properties? Why is that a good idea? Give us a, a sense of, of natural gas and why it's a preferable fuel. Well, the reason I think it's abundant first is because natural, as I think I said already, but natural gas is made wherever oil is made. And so there's a window of pressure and temperature where you make oil, and it's, and it's relatively limited. And natural gas is made when you make oil, and maybe more than the oil that's made. And same thing with coal. Coal has a limited geologic window of temperature and pressure where you make coal. But you make natural gas the whole time you're making coal. But think of natural gas. It's also made at ambient pressures and temperatures. It's in our stomach. It's in cows. It's in rice paddies. It's, um, it's in, in refuge dumps. Uh, and it goes to the highest pressure and temperature of the earth where diamonds are made because you find little specks of methane inside of diamonds. So natural gas is everywhere, and it can 
vary the pressure and temperature regimes. That's why it's throughout the universe. That's why many of our planets have natural, some of our planets have natural gas atmospheres. That's why we've found it on Mars now. And it's just abundant in both the universe and our solar system and on Earth. So it makes logical sense that it's, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of it here. It, of course, gases are the most abundant source of matter in, in the entire universe. But why is it better? Well, uh, let's look at oil. Oh, I'll start with coal. Coal is highly carbon. And it's got a lot of other nasty stuff in it, unfortunately. It has arsenic, it has mercury, it's the largest source of mercury emissions in the world. It's polluting our streams, our fish, our, and so forth. It's got particulates that are, that are uh, getting into people's lungs. It's thought, maybe, that it gives cancer. It's certainly, there's a lot of uh, disease involved with coal. And as we saw recently, the, the waste, yeah. the slurry. And then you got it all, you try to, you try to clean it up a little bit so that you reduce the CO2 emissions, okay. But you're still putting out all that stuff in holding ponds and that recently ran down the river in the TVA facilities. So uh, it's a lot better than coal because it doesn't have any of that stuff. It does have CO2, It right? has CO2, excuse me. I meant the, all the other stuff. Right. You're right. It has CO2, but, but half, half as half. much as okay. coal. Then let's compare natural gas with oil. Uh, again, it's a high carbon complex chemical uh, and uh, it has the same, some of the same problems as coal. Uh, I've read reports that because oil, uh, gasoline produces the finest particulates in the air and the health people, the, the uh, lung people say the finest ones are even worse. You can cough the big ones up, the finest ones embed in your lungs. And, so you've got huge health problems related to the, to the use of gasoline. And you look at all of our metropolitan areas, and they've got smog and pollution, and it's mostly driven by the use of gasoline. Uh, the other problem, of course, with uh, the use of gasoline or oil is all of the global problems. It's, we're buying 60 70% of it all the time from those that uh, uh, aren't too friendly from us, with us often. Um, last year, our uh, our trade deficit was about 700 billion. Of that, 450 billion of it was oil. If we could get rid of our oil, we wouldn't have much of a trade deficit. I think we could overcome that problem. Uh, we fight oil wars. Uh, we have to protect the free flow of oil. All those are huge costs that are not. Um, the costs of using more natural gas. I'm talking about just strictly North American natural gas. We've got probably more, much more natural gas left in North America uh, than does Siberia, does Russia. And it, I think it's time that America start listening to some of the American experts and not just believe the Russians, how much they might have, or believe the Iranians and how much they might have, but nobody yet seems to be believing us. And the experts well, well, all say not? there's, I don't know why not. I, I'm, not a, I'm not an inside the beltway person, but I'll tell oh, you. Oh, I see. You we have us. The, okay. We have, well, I was short, briefly in the 70s. I did register as a lobbyist even to, I was an independent producer trying to well, save the United States. Well, you're enough years States, away but, from that now that it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, 
but, but we have the potential gas committee. We have a right. new study by Navigant. If you talk to the, the producers who are natural gas producers, they'll tell you the same thing. It's the oil people that have never understood this because they ah. produce oil and they produce it internationally and they, all they knew about is the natural gas that's associated with oil production. That's why in the 70s they said, honestly believing this, we're running out. I knew that was, I knew the difference because I was fascinated with and driving our company toward natural gas. And that's the reason, I think. How much in the 70s, what, what people thought how much there was what, 300 trillion cubic 300 feet? Trillion cubic feet plus or minus and we've produced 600 trillion since then and now our estimates by anybody that does the estimates are at least uh, 2,500 uh, trillion left. My numbers are over 3,000 trillion. We just, uh, in fact I was going to say that um, the International Energy Agency uh, made the point when we were doing our research that the estimates on natural gas have been consistently um, revised upwards. Mm -hmm. um, so that, it's an interesting point that even the neutral statistical sources recognize that the estimates have been revised upward. Tell us a little bit more about why the oil companies or you know, whoever else hasn't believed in the abundance and what, what is the source of the skepticism there? Well, I don't know if it's as much skepticism as lack of knowledge um, or lack of mindset. Uh, I was in a training program with Phillips Petroleum in the, in the 1950s. And one of my jobs that had the lasting opinion, uh, 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 a, a lasting effect on me was in the economic analysis section. And so I was a trainee learning how to do economic analysis, and we evaluated every single deal that Phillips was looking at. And you put a price on oil. And I said, well, to some one of the guys there who was my supervisor, what's the price of natural gas? He said, oh, there isn't a price. It's a nuisance. At best, you can use it for a little operational uh, use to run a pump or something. So we put no value on natural gas. Now, that was in the 50s. It was not too long after that that uh, King Hubbard, the famous shell geologist, projected that uh, oil would peak in the 70s. And most all the major oil companies have always thought alike, and they all thought alike. They all did the same thing. They all thought natural gas was a nuisance. And they all knew they had to go offshore and out of America if they were going to survive and keep finding what the quantities of oil they needed. So their estimate, as you mentioned, 300 trillion that Exxon testified to, and I did my best to, to overcome that silly number, but in any event, uh, they believe that because what they were testifying to is how much natural gas there might be left in the United States associated with the oil that they were likely to find. Yet the largest natural gas fields, the Barnett, the Marcellus, the Tight Gas, the Deep Anadarko Basin, all the remaining, most of the remaining resources in America are not related to oil fields. So. That was the problem, and it probably still is the problem, with the exception of one other. Uh, the industry's been unusually uh, all this time an oil and gas industry, so that was controlled by the oil companies. There's been no natural gas lobby from the 70s through today. There's one getting put together by some independent natural gas companies today, but there's been no consistent lobby uh, at all for natural gas. So. You know, it's hard to make 
yourself known and get a point across in Washington when there's no lobby and there's not ever been one. There's been the American Gas Association, but that's not a natural gas uh, production side lobbyists. They are utilities consumers. Nothing wrong with being a utility consumer, but they've got a board that is also the gas and electrics. Well, the gas and electrics have become dominated by coal's interests because they produce more electricity based on coal. So even today, uh, the American Gas Association is really not a lobby for what I'm talking about. Okay. And, and that's an interesting question, too, the, uh, an interesting point that, as far as I understand it, the, the natural gas industry is structured very differently, where you don't have producers that have mm -hmm. the upstream, downstream um, investments, which is very different. It's all segregated. Yeah, so. there's the production side and gathering, maybe, that kind of goes together, and then there's the interstate pipelines, and then there's the utility distribution companies to, within the cities and, and metropolitan areas. So tell us a little bit then about how natural gas is being used in the United States today, because you said it, it is scalable. It's mostly for home heating um, and for industrial use or electric utilities, correct? Mm -hmm. um, how, how would you scale that up if you were going to? I, I know you've talked before well, about transportation. Yes. How well, hard would it be to convert? Not as hard as people think. Uh, I was talking to John just before we came in. I listened yesterday very carefully to everybody, and it was a great meeting. What a wonderful job you did uh, with all of those important people in energy policy coming together. And everyone was excited and should be about going electric and getting the electric get grid fixed, getting solar and uh, wind where it needs to be. All of that's important, and all of that's part of the get, because I believe all of it, and I believe natural gas is synergistic with it. But the problem that, that kept cropping up was the electric grid. Now, the electric grid's old and worn out in many places, therefore all the blackouts. Uh, the, the wind and the, and the solar aren't where you need to get the big, heavy demand for uh, electricity all the time. And some of the time, you've got sun and, and uh, gone, and you've got uh, no wind blowing. So, uh, And there's problems with structure. The structural problems are how do you permit new electric grids, because the states have a major role right today. Uh, it's not, not the same as natural gas. Uh, Governor Pataki said nobody likes wires over their head, and we have a terrible time, so not in my backyard is a big problem with the grid. Another problem with the grid, you've got to build a new super grid, super highway grid, that goes across the country uh, from where the sun and the wind are to where it's needed. Um, uh, our Nobel laureate uh, uh, Secretary of Energy, and boy, am I glad we've got a scientist there finally. Uh, uh, he's terrific. And he, he mentioned, yes, there's some problems, but the, you know, there's still some problems getting the electricity stepped down to where it needs to be for the local users and, and other technical problems. And President Clinton brought up something that no one else did, and I thought that was really neat. He said, you've got to decouple the grid. What that means is, the grid is connected to the utilities. And therefore, if I wanted to uh, go generate some electricity and could do it cheaper and put it in the grid, I can't do it because I'm not a utility. I'm blocked out of the grid, basically. I tried to do that in 1978 with our first deep well, but the rural electric said, no way we're taking that. Anyway, so we've got a lot of really complex issues to solve to get the grid ready to go. 
Now, natural gas, we've got 2.2 million miles of grid in place and paid for. It connects 63 million American homes every night. 130 million vehicles come back to those homes where they can be refueled easily with a little uh, appliance device uh, with the natural gas that's already connected to them. Let's what else is on the grid? The by far the majority of the 120,000 gasoline stations in metropolitan areas. There, it's on the grid already. So all you have to do is build a natural gas facility the, there. This grid you're talking about, natural gas pipeline. Natural gas pipeline okay. grid that's already in place. Most so, industrial facilities are on the grid. So I have natural gas heat in my house. You're yeah. telling me that I could. Yes. How much would it cost me to do that? I mean, well, it's going to be, if you really went, if the United States wanted to do a big picture, it's going to come way down. But uh, right now, it'd cost you three or $4,000 for the little appliance. I could go to China and okay. put in an order for a million, and it'd be 1500 But And same with uh, retrofitting the vehicles. How much? To, so, so you can just retrofit a gasoline-powered vehicle You can, indeed. You, that's what's happening a lot around the world, They're in, particularly in Iran right now. That's the largest <laughs> retrofitting going on. But yes, you can for another three or four thousand dollars today and that price would go skyrocketing downward with huge orders. Uh, you can retrofit your SUV, uh, your light truck or your gas guzzler to uh, a natural gas vehicle and, and Americans have between three and four trillion dollars invested in SUVs, light trucks and gas guzzlers and their home values are down today. They're not going to be converting to the newest electric car tomorrow or hybrid, but they could retrofit and the government could afford to help them retrofit. It'd take about uh, uh, 600, my numbers are, it would take about 600 billion to retrofit most of the 130 million automobiles plus build the uh, metropolitan stations out and uh, put the uh, and put the uh, uh, little devices to refuel at home in. And the people that could do that work would be the automobile dealers. And that's half our auto jobs are in the dealerships. If you want to keep them busy and working, they can retrofit all those cars and they can install the home devices. So it's a really good way for the automobile industry their employment at current levels. It's uh, an interesting way to segue into um, a, a bigger topic about policies and how you actually stand in the way of or promote, because you make the case in your book that you know this is a transition that's going to happen. And uh, one of my questions, uh, you know, our transportation sector now is about 96% fueled by oil, by petroleum. And so that's a, you know, that would be a big shift. and low oil prices right now uh, offer a complication for that. But taking that, I, I would like to open it up a little bit more before we go to questions and ask you in general, you know, this is something that's happening, but we can, here inside the Beltway, we can slow it down, we can speed it up. And you make the case in your book that there are a couple of times, and you've mentioned one of them already, you may want to elaborate on that. Um, when decisions that were made uh, by the federal government actually got in the way of this transition, and were counterproductive and had all kinds of consequences. Um, 
I think it'd be very interesting to hear you talk a little bit more about that and what you were saying about coal and the way we ended up getting so much more coal and that that was not an inevitable. Um, and, and also then, it would be great to hear you talk about the current administration because they have made it clear this is going to be a, a priority for them. Um, what you've seen so far, what you saw yesterday, what you've seen in terms of what's in the stimulus package, do you think that they're going to take steps that will, that will um, speed up the get or are you concerned on maybe ways that it's going to be tempting to stand in the way? I'm, I'm sort of interested in your forecast. So maybe tell us a little bit more about, about coal and how, uh, how that came to be, how we actually got in the way of what you called an inexorable transition. To answer your last point quickly and first, and I'll get back to it, is this administration is doing great things. I've never seen anything like that before in all my years of, of coming to Washington and listening to people talk about energy policy. It was an amazing meeting yesterday in the consensus there. But I think the administration's open to all that, and the administration, no question, will move ahead to accelerate the get slowly. Now, I say slowly because I'm going to conclude when we decide to conclude with my policy recommendations and tell you why I think we could do uh, so much more in less than a decade. Uh, okay. I, why don't you tell us first, give us the history first. About, I will. About now, let me see. How did we, I never figured out how I got that slide to move. First time <laughs> I did that. Oh, okay. Yeah, there we go. Okay. There are people back there. Now, yeah, uh, it isn't working the way I was told before we started. Uh, I've got a little. Oh, you came equipped. Right? I came equipped. This slide is simply coal use in America as a, as a percentage of energy sources. And in this slide, it's 1950. But you can see it was just headed straight down. And here, we passed the Fuel Use Act. So we changed the situation in America for another 50 years. That's, that's 100,000 megawatts, and then we just, we're still going on with it. And those coal plants probably won't be started to phase out for another five or 10 years. So that changed dramatically how we used energy in the United States. Here's two slides no one's ever seen before until the book gets out. Uh, this is 1850, and this is the carbon to hydrogen, hydrogen to carbon ratio. And you can see carbon is diminishing and hydrogen's uh, gaining. And that went continuously from 1850 to 1975 or 8, whatever that is right there. And then you can see an incredible bending of the curve. We did not keep taking carbon out of the system right here. We kept on with more or less the status quo. We had no policies except briefly Carter CAFE standards took us down some on oil imports, and then we forgot about that. So we went right on with oil imports, and we went right on with, with coal. As I said, Oklahoma went from 95% here, from 95% uh, natural gas-generated electricity to 65% coal. So that stopped. And you've also got to realize the curve looks about the same if you just showed the increase in volumes of consumption. Here, we're consuming huge volumes. So uh, the combination of not further decarbonization, no further decarbonization, or a little, it's still going, and huge volumes of fuel did this. This is the uh, uh, 1850 to the present, 
And that's global temperatures, average global temperatures. And the minute we stopped decarbonizing, that shocked the system enough to add all of this uh, uh, additional rise in global temperatures. So that's, and, and here this is only, this is a U.S. curve, this is the United States, but the rest, we led the rest of the world in that same decision. Everybody said, okay, coal's the deal, there's no more natural gas, let's go coal and, and we don't care how much oil we use. And that's basically the way the world is run until now. And so we're going to make some other decisions and we must not make the same kind of mistakes, which I think coal to liquids would be, biofuels would be, that can be controversial. Oh, biofuels. Yes, because it's a liquid. It's just, an, it, biofuels are simply a, a, a desperate attempt to put liquids in tanks of automobiles. And we could put gas in instead. You change the tank, not the automobile. Americans love their cars. There's nothing wrong with them. Let's just change the fuel to a domestic fuel and drive them. Uh, anyway, so I think the get, that's the importance of the get, is civilization. We're, we're teaching ourselves, if we'll just realize it, what to do. We're teaching ourselves what are the losers and what are the most likely winners. And we just need to look at that and act on it. Because you can see when you act in the opposite direction, that's what happens. You have the world going wrong. And you can see uh, biofuels, look, uh, if they were so great and they were going to work and sustain civilizations as a transportation fuel, we wouldn't be having all the problems with them. They begin to show themselves. We've got to subsidize them. We've spent $8 billion subsidizing them so far. They're more expensive than gasoline. I mean, why do we need that? Natural gas is clean, 30% less CO2 emissions, not all the other emissions, and it costs uh, less than gasoline and biofuels. Okay. Um, I, I, you're not optimistic about cellulosic or some of the... The no, the grand energy transition tells me liquids, no matter what, are on the way out. Civilization is driving it. It's going to drive them out. And it, governments may resist it because it sometimes sounds good. They'll try, and just like we have. Maybe a niche market like Brazil, yeah, for a while. But even there, eventually, it will be driven out by a more efficient, cheaper fuel that doesn't need to be subsidized. Okay, well then, why don't you... Um Tell us, what are your policy recommendations then? If that's the case, and you think you're optimistic that this administration is going in the right direction, what is your advice for them? What do you think they need to do? Well, first, don't make any more mistakes. Okay. They well, haven't made easy. any yet. Excuse right. me. We, we must not, as a nation, make more mistakes. Oh, okay. Now, first let's look at our goals. Uh, we can't stand more oil price shocks. Uh, we had it in the 80s and basically the same thing happened only not as dramatic as now. Uh, it's true that not the entire economic contraction that's going on globally is due to the oil price shocks but they're related and they were driving them and they probably made them more volatile because it was it was distorting the flows of capital around the world there was so much capital in certain places. That capital, the petrodollars, were being loaned to banks. Banks were then leveraging 30 times. So we were over-leveraging not only the financial system, but 
our energy system. So that's one problem we got to get rid of. Another is uh, we need economic and strategic security. Uh, the United States is not at its peak of negotiating power around the world if it doesn't want to use uh, our military. I mean, we've always got, I guess, that option, but we're, we're running out of the uh, negotiating options, particularly in the Middle East, because we're dependent, period, end of story, on the Middle East for oil. Uh, it certainly cuts across Iran and everything we do in Iraq. And so that's something that has to be solved. The next one is climate, increasing potential for climate disasters. Some probably are already going on. Uh, the yeah, Nicholas Stern in, in the UK says that he looked at it as an economist at the London School of Economics and was the World Bank, and he said, well, we're liable to have a shock that is the equivalent of, of, of both world wars and the Great Depression combined. And then he looked back at his work a year later and said, I might have been too conservative. Uh, so really, if you look at climate, and I know you have at CNAS, um, you're running the risk of social and economic collapse globally. So those are the problems that we've got to solve. Well, how do we solve them? If we're going to solve them soon, we can, I'll tell you how scaling up natural gas will do it. A major step forward in the least amount of time because it is scalable. Uh, the Obama administration has a historic opportunity right now to eliminate those three, I call them three intolerables that I just mentioned. But in order to do it, the administration needs to focus on what will work. I've got a chapter, what will work, what won't work, and it's based on the grand energy transition. Because you hear often people in the energy world say, uh, we've got to do everything. And that's code for we've got to continue using coal and we've got to continue using oil. Uh, we don't have to do everything. We should not do everything. It's a waste of our limited, particularly today, capital and limited people that have the ability to work on it. We need to use all the good brains and all of our capital focused on what will work. Um, so our goals are to regain that economic uh, stability, get off oil, regain our energy security, uh, achieve our climate stability. So, number one, I've got an energy and industrial recovery plan. Oh, okay. And what I'd like to do, if I could weigh my magic wand, or if President Obama could do that with the Congress, uh, uh, in five years, we could retrofit half American vehicles to natural gas, um, particularly those that come home to the 63 million homes, but don't forget it, the numbers I give you will also include having the filling stations up and running and having a lot of people go to work at industrial facilities and all those are connected to natural gas, so you can also put a gas filling station there. I'm gonna let them keep using their automobiles that they've invested three or four trillion in and uh, what that simple five-year, step is, and maybe it's not so simple, but if we geared up like we did in World War II to produce what was necessary to win World War II, I mean, our, 
automobile companies revolutionized themselves. They were building tanks and armaments and everything else in three years. So it's possible. We could do it. It could be a tremendous opportunity to bring America together to have a goal like this. And what would that goal accomplish in, that we could get done in five years? It would save millions of jobs in the auto industry. It would reduce our oil imports by over five million barrels of oil per day. That would save us trillions of dollars of future payments right there to, to oil producers around the world and pay out in some five or six years and pay back from then on in more and more trillions of dollars that would be spent and used to stimulate our economy within the economy. It would add hundreds of, thou hundreds of thousands of jobs in our industry as we expanded to keep the natural gas flowing. Uh, it would increase the payments. And this is important to the rural America, which goes to schools and farmers and landowners, by tens of billions of dollars annually that have recently been lost. Not anybody recognizes probably that because of the collapse in the price of gas, we've got gas on gas competition, uh, that, that those payments to all those rural Americans has gone down by tens of billions annually. Uh, we dodge something that if we don't get on with now uh, could happen to us and it could happen in the next decade easily and that's peak oil. Peak oil is real and uh, it will happen and if we don't want to have another collapse like this and peak we'd better get off of oil. Uh, it would, from the transportation sector, it would reduce CO2 emissions by about 250 million tons per year and it would el eliminate smog and pollution in all the metropolitan eras, uh, areas and reduce our uh, trade deficit by over 50%. And you, you don't think there's any danger of hitting a peak natural gas moment too? If we Not until we've gone electric and hybrid. Uh, we've got, that's why I call it the, tran the transition fuel. We use the gas, yeah, we've got probably 30, 50 years easily with really stepped up and that, that's just here inside America. You had North America, you had a little bit from LNG coming into the country. Uh, we've got enough to do 70 years of natural gas at these rates. Will we? Probably not. We'll never run out of natural gas, and we'll never run out of oil, never run out of coal. We need to go to the better fuels. But that gives us the time to develop the electrics and go plug-ins. Then, one other thing, and this is a huge step forward, also connected to the natural gas grid that's in place, connected to the gas already, is 450,000 megawatts of natural gas generation capacity. There's in the, in the United States today, there's 336,000 megawatts of coal. So not many people realize we've got more capacity to generate with natural gas today then we do coal, but we don't run that natural gas because the way the electric utilities return their investment to their stockholders benefits them from using the bigger cost, more expensive plants. And it's cheaper because they can dump all the waste and stuff in the rivers and the, the TVA problem and they can pollute the air. But if you rent, if, you, if we just if we, re if we regulate uh, CO2, as the EPA might do, as a, uh, a pollutant, 
maybe by the stroke of a pen without even a congressional act like well, the Fuel Use Act, the, the gas. we could run first the natural gas. Now, in theory, if you just ran first the natural gas and then the coal, that would save around a billion tons of CO2 emissions per year. And we're trying to get from 6 billion today down to 4 billion, which is 20% below 1990 levels. Uh, but that's a big, big bunch of it. Now, we can't do that because a lot of the coal plants aren't at the right place on the grid and all that sort of stuff. But let's just say we did 50 or 60% of that. That's 500 to 600 billion tons a year. Add back in the 250 by convert billion that by converting the natural the, the half the fleet to natural gas, you're up to 850 minus 850 billion tons. Then add to that the fact that we've already got in place uh, another 40 percent efficiency by 2020, and that might get accelerated in automobiles so that we'll add the cafe hiking up the cafe standards. Add to that efficiency, and that's another at least 200 um, billion ton, uh, 200 million tons, and you're up to a billion tons per year in probably five years. Now that's a real huge step forward. Uh, that's more than any other plan, Pickens' plan, uh, the the plan that was presented by Smith at, at Federal Express, said okay, a million vehicles of electric vehicles by 2050. You know, all those things stretch it all out the get for on and on and on. This drives it forward. It's affordable. We could do all that for probably $600, 600 billion dollars and it pays for itself. None of the others pay for themselves by eliminating payments to foreign oil producers. So that is uh, my plan, and it all boils down to the three words I like best, jet the get. Okay. Well, I think that's a good point at which to invite some questions. Um, and Kurt, did you, you wanted to wrap up the entire, okay. Um, sir, you had your hand up immediately. Thank you very much. Obviously, this comes down to economics and uh, cost-benefit calculations, alternative uh, calculations. Uh, you said it costs about $3,000, I understand you, to convert an automobile. Uh, how many years do you need to run on gas, uh, f uh, um, fuel, um, gas versus liquid fuel to make that pay off for the average household? Second part of the question is, I see buses here in D.C. are running on natural gas. Do we know what the economics of those are and how that would compare with the, the diesel that they would normally otherwise use? Well, of course, that all depends on the price of the diesel and the gasoline. If we think it's going to stay today, it's today's prices, the natural gas is probably uh, about the same price. It, natural gas runs in America today from 80, 88 cents a gallon in Utah to $2.50 a gallon in some parts of the East Coast. So it runs the, the gamut. But the, the, but the real economics are the economics to all Americans, to the country, and to uh, to our financial status as a nation. And to the extent you're eliminating the oil and diesel uh, and backing it out of the system, uh, we're gaining overall tremendously because it's getting us off 
the oil addiction, and it's getting us off the cost of the oil wars, it's getting off the cost of the pollution, and many of those things. So if you do a real cost analysis, then the payout, I don't know, I mean, you could, we need to do all those calculations, but uh, the overall payout to America, if we did what I just proposed, is about uh, five or six or seven years, and then we save trillions of dollars of profits in the into the future. So the analysis always needs to be not necessarily just the price that the consumer pays, but the price to America, the cost to America. The externalities. The sir. externalities. Sir, right? Um, I'm Walter McLeod. I'm with the Eagle Capital Group. Um, it's a great idea, fascinating. And um, I was just wondering if you'd given any thought to um, a pilot effort of implementing this at the state or at a urban county, large city level, just to get the ball rolling. Well, that's a great idea. Unfortunately, my friend, former governor of Oklahoma, David Walters, had to leave, but in, in the 1980s, uh, I was actually in the uh, compressed natural gas business and that collapsed when all the rest of this collapsed and we decided to go back to coal and oil. But he ran, he converted all the state's vehicles to natural gas and he, he had a refueling station at his, uh, at the governor's mansion and we were on our way. But uh, I, you're absolutely right. I've often thought that many communities, uh, you'll find in the book, uh, particularly I used uh, Los Angeles is a case study. Uh, the one great thing about Los Angeles, after you just wring your fingers and say, oh my goodness, how can we ever uh, overcome all these cars on the freeways and all this smog and all these problems, you realize the only major step forward you can take quickly is to use the infrastructure that in place. And all, most all the homes in Los Angeles are connected to natural gas. And all those cars could be retrofitted to natural gas. And that'd be a great place to do a national program. And California's often in the lead in the future. And if I ever have a chance to uh, talk to their great governor, who is bipartisan, he says, and I think he is, he's doing a great job of that, that's what I would recommend. I think also you might see the federal government um, and the Department of Defense in the coming years as a potential pilot project. Uh, and I think. Perhaps the administration will move in that direction. Sir, right there. Uh, Patrick Landers, I uh, consult on this sort of stuff. Um, your book describes a series of transitions. Um, and the thought that comes to my mind, because when I talk to infrastructure people, they say, we're not going to move until Detroit moves. And when you talk to Detroit, they say, we're not going to move until infrastructure moves. So. Given that we have this vision of these various transitions, how do we develop an infrastructure that can expand through them? About natural gas is that the, the excuse me, the guts of the infrastructure is in place, and it's the natural gas pipeline grid, and we're lucky that it serves so much. Uh, well over half American homes, most all big industry. Um, and uh, most all the gasoline stations. So that's a great step forward for infrastructure. That's why, that, that's why we can scale up natural gas first. 
Now, the Detroit problem uh, is easier, I think, easier solved with natural gas than it is hybrids and electrics. Uh, General Motors, Chrysler, uh, Ford all make natural gas vehicles in Europe. Now, all you have to do is bring those models back and produce them here. Uh, so that's, that step's basically done. They've got a long ways to go before they'll perfect hybrids in, uh, in electric vehicles, and that'll take a lot of money. But that technology's in hand. It's being used. Uh, all of the European uh, automobile companies produce uh, natural gas vehicles. Uh, Honda's the only one that produces one here, the Civic. Um, and then you can only get it right now, uh, as you said, chicken and egg problem on the West Coast and the East Coast. But that could easily be expanded and changed if the, if the United States decided we were going to go natural gas for a large segment, segment of our transportation uh, sector. So you're saying that's a government decision that has to be made to break that chicken and egg problem? Yes, absolutely it is. Right here in the front. Hi, my name is Clara Vondrich. I'm uh, an attorney with Arnold & Porter. Um, I just wanted to hear you speak a little bit about the synergy between your plan and an ultimate transition towards the truly clean technologies like solar and wind. Because my biggest fear has always been that the more we focus on these sorts of transition periods or technologies, we're diverting attention from the truly clean ones. Great question. Um, solar and wind today need natural gas to exist because the wind doesn't run all the time and the solar doesn't create electricity all the time. So in order to have a stable supply for communities 24-7, 365 days a year, you need natural gas to be able to scale up and down. So unlike nuclear and coal, which have to run at base load and have to be run all the time, natural gas doesn't. It, it's easy. Those are turbines. It's just like a jet engine in any airplane you fly on. And they, it, you can just go up and down. Uh, that's, that's simple. So they're synergistic uh, with, uh, with um, wind and solar. Also, um, some of the techniques to get hydrogen for hydrogen vehicles are uh, out of natural gas because it has four hydrogens and it has only one carbon. And so that's a technology that's been used today industrially all over the world. And that helps phase in hydrogen, which is the cleanest of all fuels. And I've been talking recently to the uh, General Electric people about their turbines and learning how much hydrogen they can run. And, and some of them can run up today. They need to improve this, but they can run up to 50% hydrogen, which produces no CO2. So once again, as they improve those turbines, and as we move, it helps us move toward, toward uh, hydrogen. Natural gas is the only fuel that actually accelerates us toward where you want to go and I want to go. I think we have time for one last question. We have one more question. Um, see, sir, right there. Epon from Marvel Technologies. I noticed that uh, Picking have uh, run ads, you know, use her, his own money to run ads in, on TV and stuff, I guess, it's to try to convince the American people and uh, convince the, the government officials or Congress. I wonder how, how are you doing in convincing the, the Congress or government 
in, in your plan, for your plan? Well, thank you for the opening. I, uh, I did a lot in the 70s, and I'm just getting started again. Uh, Boone Pickens is a friend of mine. He spent, uh, his campaign is, is approaching a $50 million campaign, and so that gets people's attention. Uh, I don't have that to spend on a, on, a, on a campaign. What I want to do is spend it with you and the logic of it all and the people. If I can get out there to enough people and enough people buy the book, you can all be that advertising campaign. Um, now, I buy into partially the uh, Pickens plan. He likes wind and natural gas, and that's great. But he's also, I mean, I've known him forever, he's been like all the major oil companies, he was an oil geologist. And at first, he didn't even understand that there was plenty of natural gas. He just, that's why he wanted to put it into the trucks. We, and at first, he was talking about we have to get it out of electric generation and use it in transportation. We don't have to do that. We have got plenty for both. And it's the fastest way we can reduce CO2 emissions and go green in America, along with the sister fuels of wind, solar, hydrogen, and eventually hydrogen fusion. So I would encourage you all to support the Hefner plan by buying the book out at the table in the back, and Mr. Hefner will be happy to sign. But just for a few concluding thoughts, I'd like to invite uh, the CEO of the Center for New American Security, Kurt Campbell, to come up. And it's a real, it's a pleasure for us to have concluding remarks from Kurt because he's been such a thought leader on energy and climate change, and particularly the ways in which they're national security issues. So, Kurt, thank you for giving us a wrap-up here. Yes, thanks, Sharon, and also thank you to Robert and to May Lee, who's really the inspiration behind Robert. Um, I, I just want to say a couple of things personally about Robert as we conclude here. Um, you read his bio, and all of us read that bio, and we think, boy, I'm worthless because my life, I haven't made as much money. I haven't been as successful. But what Robert hasn't described to you is the path of his career and his life. And in fact, like many people in this industry, he's had very good years and he's had very, very bad years. And one of the things that's most impressive for me, uh, working with him and inter interacting with him over the last several years, is not simply the fact that he's got some very interesting ideas and willing to get out and to defend them, but the fact that he's essentially optimistic. I myself, as a sort of a Scotch Irish, I tend towards the pessimistic, we're all going to die, the world is, you know, in, on fire sort of thing. And one of the things that's most impressive about hanging with Robert is that he will always give you the optimistic side. So I was with him uh, on the inaugural and we were talking and I was talking about the, you know, the financial situation, what we were facing, some of the very worrisome new prospects associated with global climate change. And he said, Kurt, you're too young to be so pessimistic. And you've really got to understand that the only way forward is to really embrace the challenges that we're facing and really tackle them head on. And so as you read this book, you may not be convinced by everything, but there's a lot there for you to take into careful consideration. But you should be most impressed by a man who's really devoted his life to really an optimistic, can-do American spirit. If there's anything we need right now in this country, it's that kind of spirit. I'd ask you please to join me in a very warm thank you and congratulations on a job well done with this book. Thank you, Kurt. That's very nice. Thank you so much. And this is, and I remind you, um, the purpose of a book signing is to buy books and then sign them. So he's going to go directly. You're not going to interrupt him. He's going to go directly to the back and please uh, sign books, uh, buy books, and he'll sign them. Okay, thank you all very much.